millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Tim Rasmussen, and you're listening to Pop Violence. Well, listener, I hope that you are excited because today's episode about Les Mis is me sitting down with my good friend, colleague, classmate, Lindsay, who is an avid enthusiast and fan of Les Mis, and as you're about to find out, an extremely intelligent and thoughtful person. Today's episode is going to be covering a conversation that was quite long And for sake of time and just to give to you what I consider to be the best quality content, just the natural flow of an organic conversation where we're covering a breadth of really important and complex topics, I'm going to pull back from doing a lot of narration today and let the conversation speak for itself. It's going to be on you to look out for those pieces of information and theory and ideas and perspectives. They're going to shed some more light on how we're continuing to understand violence, conflict, peace, and justice. So enjoy. You know, I've, I've never actually like come to Les Mis with like a specific intent on like interpreting it. Although it's like, it's kind of hard not to do, at least for me, it was even from the beginning. Like the first time I saw, I ne- first time I ever was exposed to Les Mis was the movie in 2012, which maybe that's a little bit of an indictment for like me as like a, someone who should even be talking about this. But <laughs> I just remember right from the beginning, I was like, I was like trying to interpret it. I was like, what? Like, there, I feel like there's like, there's like underlying themes that are, that are, that are coming out for me. Um, and I was a senior in high school at the time, but, and this, this was my first time really going into it with that intention of like, okay, what can I get out of this? Like, what am I trying to interpret from the production? And I was, yeah, it was, it was more moving for me than any other time I've watched it. I was really moved by, I was really, I was like, wow, like this is, this is a very just, I don't know. It's a gut punch, but it's also like a. I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to put words to it fully. It's right. just, it's huge. It's, it's, it's really big. So, yeah. And this is your 10 year anniversary. So that's this is my exciting. 10 year anniversary. It's so exciting. Les Mis is my favorite musical. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been saying that pretty much ever since I watched it. The first time I saw it was in February of 2011. It was my brother's senior musical at Williams South high school. Mm-hmm. And he was on stage crew. Okay. And we went to see all of his musicals at South. But Les Mis is a different kind of musical. The first one we ever saw at South was Pajama Game and then Hello Dolly. And those are, those are fine musicals. I, I really love mm-hmm. Hello Dolly. But Les Mis, like, 
unlike any other musical that I'd ever seen at, at that time. It is so complex. Mm -hmm. It is so muddy. Like there's no, you kind of love and hate everyone at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a muddy musical. There's no, well, well, we're gonna talk into, we're gonna get into what's right and wrong, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, it's a huge theme of the musical, but it's, it's, not, it's not a rom-com, or at least it's not just a love story. It's not mm -hmm. just a musical about revolution. Um, it's a musical about carceral violence. It's a musical about yeah. abolition. It's a musical about martyrdom. It's a music. I mean, we have this long list of topics here. So it's really, yeah. really muddy. And so for me, as a 13-year-old, I was in seventh grade, um, and I went to see this musical, and it kind of blew my mind. Mm -hmm. And I went to see every single production, actually, that was at South. Oh, cool. Um, and they, at the time, they did Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday matinee. And I had a softball game on Sunday and I went to my softball game and then went immediately and caught the end of Les Mis and I like walked in in my uniform <laughs> and I was like, That's no, look awesome. at me, please, but it's so good. Um, so yeah, that was 10 years ago and I, I watched it and I've always said it's my favorite musical, but I've never really like, I mean, I bought the book and said that I would read it and never did until mm. this year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I never, like I said, I've never read any analysis of it. I just, Love the music and I loved how, I love that it made me feel something so strongly, which a lot of musicals do that. I think storytelling in general is incredible for the way that it does that. And like I said, there's just something different about Les Mis. You feel so many different things mm -hmm. throughout the course of the show. Um, and the music makes you feel so many incredible things. The music is incredible. So that's, that's kind of how the last 10 years have been. Um, but then this, when you were like, hey, do you want to be on this podcast? And I was like, are you kidding me? I get to talk about my favorite <laughs> musical. What? Yes. Which, thank you. I'm so honored to be here. Um, but then getting to like sit down and read the book 10 years later and think about who I was when I first saw the musical hmm, and yeah. who I am now. Like all of these themes that we've pulled out, I think for a lot of them, Les Mis was like my introduction. Um, Interesting. And I don't, I don't know that I would have said that at the time. Like when I was 13, I was not thinking about prison abolition, <laughs> definitely mm -hmm. not in those words, but I, you leave the musical and you're like, hmm, this isn't right. You know what I mean? Like you, you watch the musical and you watch what happens to Jean Valjean after he gets out of prison. Yeah. And you think this, something is wrong here. And you think that way about so many different topics throughout the musical. Victor Hugo in the book and also the people who wrote the musical who I'm I'm really bad at pronouncing French. Sorry, everybody, in advance. Everything I've learned about French pronunciation, I learned from Les Mis and <laughs> to the audiobook. So apologies in advance. But just like, I think that, so Victor Hugo covers so many critiques of society in his book, and it's something that carries over very well into the musical, mm -hmm. um, which is very impressive how much they were able to fit. I mean, it's a long musical. Yeah. But it's also like, it's a thousand page book, so. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, it's interesting that what you said about like, you felt like it was like an in this Les Mis was like your introduction to a lot of the topics that we've sort of, we've, we've, we've put on paper to talk about during the conversation. Because I could see I could see some similar ways that that's been an experience for me It's like, I remember when I first watched it, like, I think coming out of like a, a cons very conservative religious home it was an interesting experience to watch Les Mis because there is a lot of talk about God and stuff <laughs> and stuff. It's a really, you know, refined way to say that. But I just remember like the, 
the thing that like everybody in my family like fixated on and I think was a bit of a conundrum was like this idea of like mercy and justice and just like trying to unpack that and like that like does Valjean represent mercy and Javert represent justice and there's like this this tension or this like grinding between the two of them um that's like a, this lifelong like conflict and is that like which one is godly like is and it's just and i remember and i feel like it was almost indicative of even just like the nature of religion up until now like sort of the conventional understandings of god and god's justice to even like have that continue to be such a conundrum but i think it's also indicative of you know just how how well written the whole thing is because it really leaves you like scratching your head. I don't know. That's, and I think that that got me, that got my, my wheels turning in a way that I think was, uh, in a, in some ways kind of like foundational to just sort of continuing. Like once you start to, you know, externalize like characters or even just like the concept of like justice and like start to think like, what does that mean? I think that's like a, you know, that's, that's a, that's a great, first step down like a long road that has maybe led me to CJP. I don't know. Yeah. Um, that's such an incredible, that's such a huge question of Les Mis, right? Mm -hmm. Is what is just. Yeah. And I think that like you just hit on something that it's something that I never fully appreciated about Les Mis until I really dug in this time. Because mm -hmm. again, there's just so much in Les Mis that I, I knew it was there. I knew it was a good question. Like, oh, what is just? you know, Jean Valjean running away from the police the whole time, but he's the good guy, you know, that's just like very surface level. Mm -hmm. But this time really digging in and also definitely bringing like the last five years of my education with me and current events that are <laughs> framing where I'm coming from now. But it is so clear in this musical that Javert represents law and order and represents, you know, like the, they call it the code in the book, but like the, the rules of society and that Jean Valjean, who is opposed, or at least Javert is opposed to Jean Valjean, but Jean Valjean represents justice and mm -hmm. what is just. Because at points, I mean, it's literally Ooh. in the lyrics, like mm -hmm. during the confrontation, which is this brilliant, brilliant uh, song that like lays out their whole rela relationship and- Okay, um, which, song, which song is this? The confrontation is when Fantine is dying in the okay. hospital and Jean Valjean mm -hmm. has just revealed that he's Jean Valjean and Javert mm -hmm. comes back and Valjean at last, yeah. that one. Yes. Um, so during the confrontation, Jean Valjean says, let me see this justice done. Let me take care of her child um, because I, she, she's, she was innocent. My factory threw her out. Um, her, her child, who is also totally innocent, is going to die probably because no one's there to care for her. So let me see this justice done. Let me take care of this. And then I'll go with you. But let, mm -hmm. first, let me see this justice done. And Javert, who is a part of the legal system, who is a part of what we call, you know, the quote unquote justice system, says no, says mm -hmm. no to justice. And that is part of their back and forth that continues through the whole musical. Every time they meet, and even when they don't, and Javert is just thinking about it, like Jean Valjean is trying to do something good. Mm -hmm. like good with a capital G good. And yeah. Javert is always opposed to that thing that mm -hmm. Jean Valjean is trying to, doing, to do, which is a radical 
understanding of the police for a yeah. musical that was written in 1985. Mm -hmm. It's a radical, it's, it's just a radical idea that just and law are not the same thing. Justice and law are not the same thing. And in fact, except for Jean Valjean's initial arrest, I don't think there's a single time in this book where justice and law are working together. Mm -hmm. Or in this musical, I should say too. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I, I really love that you put that question into our sheet that says like, who is the bad guy in this musical or in this story? And cause I'm like, I'm so unsure, you know? It feels like on the surface, it's definitely Javert. Like he's like, he's always coming in and doing the bad thing. But when he has these moments to himself, at least from what I know from the musical, it's like this, there's like this internal conflict and this in internal, like, I don't know, struggle that's going on with his motivations and I guess his worldview that it makes it feel like he's not necessarily the bad guy. And I think maybe that's like the most fascinating thing of all. I, I'm wondering, I wonder what you, what would you would say to your own question or like even why you put that in there? Yeah, a good person and a bad person that, you know, typical. And in uh, Les Mis, the good, the good guy is clearly Jean Valjean, I think. I mean, you could argue that at moments, but the protagonist, as it is written, is meant to be Jean Valjean. You're supposed to be rooting for Jean Valjean. You're supposed to mm -hmm. be, you know, in awe of his redemption and his sacrifice, and which are all also other topics that we've <laughs> put on our um, sheet to talk about. But mm -hmm. so you're, he's the good guy, right? And then I was like, well, does that make Javert the bad guy? And when I first saw Les Mis, I definitely didn't think that. I definitely mm -hmm. wasn't like, oh, Javert is clearly the bad guy. Because when I first saw Les Mis, you know, Javert is trying to do what he thinks is right. He's trying to uphold the law. It was a question that helped me understand um, kind of framing for that justice law question, I think. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you, you often in stories and musicals, especially simple ones, which we've already established that Les Mis is not simple, but mm -hmm. especially in simple ones, you know, you've got a good guy and you've got a bad guy. Excuse the gendering. And he's never, he doesn't wish Jean Valjean ill for no reason. He's trying to arrest him again because he broke parole. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, there's injustice in that because the system <laughs> is very corrupt and unjust. But I, I didn't I didn't think of him as the bad guy. And then I was like, well, do you call the Tenardiers the bad folks? They're comedic relief. Yeah. They're sympathetic. You love the Tenardiers. You love Master of the House and Beggars at the Feast. And mm -hmm. but they're also the thieves. They're the one they're the ones who truly wish ill intent to the most people. Yeah, they do the some musical. like pretty despicable things, you know? Yeah, and they're more despicable in the book. That's what I've heard, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, so I guess I was just, I was trying to think through this and I was like, so what, like in such a muddy musical, what is, what is the narrative? I was, this came from like me asking myself, what is Les Mis about? Mm -hmm. And I came to this question and now, cause usually it's like, you know, there's a good guy who's trying to do this and there's a bad guy who's trying to stop him. And that's not really the dynamic here. And so then I asked, I started to ask this of other people too. I asked this to like friends and I asked my mom, actually, my mom popped right out with, I said, okay, mom, who's the, who would you say is the bad guy of Les Mis? And she said, the bad guy is the uh, political environment that led to the circumstances that all these people have to deal with. And I was like, oh, so the bad guy is systemic oppression. Okay, mm -hmm. I can deal with, I, I can get down with that. I dig that. And that's kind of, that shifted my framing 
a little bit, or at least it, it made, I think it made Victor Hugo's framing clearer because mm -hmm. that's something that in the book it, he's very clear about and even worse. But he would, he also is very clear that like the way that Tenardier is right now is not his fault. The way that the people are is the fault of the people who have the power to create these systems. I, I think he would also say that Javert is a problem. And he would also say that the Tenardiers are bad. <laughs> they mm -hmm. are, they are actively trying to hurt people almost the entire time. And actually, if you want a good quote about that, there's actually a line in the very beginning of the book, he's describing the bishop that saves mm -hmm. Jean Valjean. Uh -huh. And this is actually a line that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. quoted in a speech that he gave, or at Kleinhands in Buffalo. Um, but so the Martin Luther King Jr. quote is, Victor Hugo said on one occasion, where there is darkness, crimes will be committed. The guilty one is not merely he who commits the crime, but he who caused the darkness. And so that's right. Exactly. I love that face you're making. So in the book, the bishop is talking about this. And so the bishop says, teach those who are ignorant as many things as possible. Society is culpable and that it does not afford instruction gratis. It is responsible for the night which it produces. This soul is full of shadow. Sin therein is committed. The guilty one is not the person who has committed the sin but the person who has created the shadow, which is brilliant. And yeah. there you go, that right there is what we're talking about. Yeah. And then he, he continues to say, Victor Hugo then says of the bishop, it will perceive that he had a peculiar manner of his own of judging things. I suspect he obtained it from the gospel, which is Victor Hugo is writing in 1860s France. There's a lot of Christian themes as we've already touched on, but I also just love that line because the, the like, the snarkiness in that like I suspect that he got it from the gospel yeah. and he's opposed he's actually arguing I think with another bishop in this section so he's he's mm. like he digs a lot at the church capital C church um, mm -hmm. but we don't have to get into that right now just to get into that the the person who's culpable is the person who creates the shadow the person who is upholding these systems that create the circumstances that make Tenardier bad that make Cosette the you know focus of oppression that sent Jean Valjean to prison for 20 years for stealing a loaf of bread yeah that is so fascinating because i as that was like the first thing that came it's it's really really impressive to me that that is in the book i'm and that that's like something that is sort of pretty explicitly expressed because that's when i was reading that question that's like the conclusion I kind of came to as well was like, it's got to be like the system. It's got to be the, the greater, you know, environment or however you want to call it. That is sort of the quote, you know, bad guy or bad person in the, in the uh, uh, narrative. And I feel like, I, just, I still feel like that it's interesting though, because I think that's maybe the, the, the tough thing about Javert and what he represents in like the, like law and order in that like the law and order doesn't really have like any tool or mechanism at its disposal to like hold society culpable really like it's it's individualistic like purely individualistic and 
I just feel like that is, and I, I mean, I think obviously we're descendants of that in our society. Like I feel like the norm in our society is also like that same mindset and that same approach. And we're sort of ruled by the same sort of legal approach. And that's one of the things that like, I was watching the film and I mean, I, to me, like the, 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 the peak part of the film, which is also like the low point of the film is Anne Hathaway's performance, which to me was just like, like, it's, it's just incredible. And I, I thought that, you know, I watch, and I watched the behind the scenes, um, some of the featurettes on like the DVD. Uh, I, yes, I did watch it on DVD. I know. Um, but, uh, and she, she describes uh, some of her methodology that she sort of followed in like, um, you know, in her, her performance and her singing of I Dreamed a Dream and, and, and all that. And I mean, it's just, just really, really impressive and, and so moving. But what I walked away from that thinking this time is like, why is it that when we watch that, we don't think we like, what is our thought process about like her state, like where she's at? Like we watch, we watch this series of events and I'm sure. And then like, you kind of told me like in the book, you get a lot more of like a fleshed out idea of this series of events in her life that led to her eventual death and like to her, for her to be where she's at. And it's just like odd to me that I'm like, why, why do we watch that? And I don't know if it's like the norm to really like interrogate that and to say like, like, is, is society okay if this is even happening at all? Like, is this like, why are, are we okay with this, with this happening to people? Um, Cause if we are okay with it, if we think that it's just something that happens, then we're pretty much on, we're like Javert when he like approaches her and, you know, he kind of says like, you know, save your tears, save your breath. Because, you know, I, I think, I think I wrote down one of his lines Oh, honest work, just reward. That's the way to please the law. And I'm like, that is like, like, that's like what, that's like what we, that's like what our whole society works off of is like what Javert is feeding us. And then we see this like really, really intense byproduct of that mindset. But like, I feel like so often we don't like connect the dots and say like, this is a byproduct of this or this enables this to happen. And so, yeah, that's, that's really insightful that that's there in the book, that it, that it kind of opens up the conversation to the systemic part. Especially putting Fontaine's story so close to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, other than, like, you, you learn about the bishop first for 40 pages, and it's really fascinating. And then you learn about Jean Valjean, and then you learn about Fontaine. Okay. And so she's, you know, the third major character that you're learning about and she really her story so we as you kind of mentioned a lot of us or at least what like my education system sort of gave me is like you know you get what you deserve like that's mm-hmm. what our society is structured right now quote unquote deserve so like yeah. the that's meritocracy how our, yeah right that's how our um right that's how our meritocracy that's how our workplaces are set up supposedly that's how people you know, pull themselves up by the bootstraps, which I liked on a previous episode, you referenced the bootstraps for the boots that you don't own. But so that's how you like, you get what you deserve and you work hard, you go far and you get what you deserve in that if you break the law, you get the punishment you deserve. And that's kind of the mind frame that we have here. You, uh, that's our like punitive 
That's how our punitive criminal legal system is structured, supposedly. But in Fontaine, she did not do anything wrong. And this is where she ends up. So she totally breaks that down. Not a single thing. She gets fired because she has a daughter that she has given to somebody else to raise. And everyone assumes that she's a sex worker, which is an incorrect assumption and also doesn't mean that you don't deserve to, <laughs> to have a job. Yeah. But also, so like everyone assumes things about her and, and she is left, everything that happens to her is because of what other people assume of her, but nothing is what she actually did. So all of our like mind frames of you get what you deserve, she did nothing to deserve. I mean, I would argue that no one does anything to deserve where Fontaine ends up, but mm -hmm. especially in the way that we typically think of justice, like nothing that she did should have led to where she ended up. She worked hard. She tried her best to take care of her daughter. She, yeah, she did her best at every level and it wasn't enough. And so Les Mis is clearly saying, why, why is it that for someone who did their best, why is that not enough? And that's, that's the story of Fontaine. And it also comes out in the, the song that comes right after we, uh, like the, the 10 years later jump when we first meet Fontaine and we get Jean Valjean as the mayor of this factory at, at the end of the day. Yeah. That song where it's like, at the end of the day, you're another day older and that's all you can say if you're poor. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a struggle, it's a war for a day standing about, what is it for? Like we are trying, we are giving everything. We are giving everything and it is not enough. And what does that say about society? Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's what Lim is, is bringing to light. Like for all of these people, why, why is it that we have accepted a society where people fall through the cracks, fall through the giant ass holes, they're not really cracks, all mm -hmm. the time. Why have we accepted that as okay? That's so interesting because I was really, I, I never paid attention that much to that song because it's not like a, it's not like this like premiere song that has like this, this like really beautiful, like something you wanna like sing yourself. But I paid attention to it this time. And I remembered that when I used to watch this, I used to always be so angry at Fontaine's coworkers, the ones that like turn her in. Cause I'm like, they're like, like they're the reason why this happens to her. And, and they do it just, and I, and I guess at the time when I was young, I would just thought it was like out of spite, like, or just because they don't like her. And then that, that like this time watching it, I was like, okay, I need to interrogate that a little bit. I need to think like, that it can't be that simple that it's just like they just hate Fontaine or they just you know they're jealous of her or something so they decide that they want to do that and maybe there's I'm sure that there's more light on this in the book but to me I was just like okay now now it's clicking like this is like them doing that to her is like the very like spirit of capitalism that's like what we're that's what we are compelled to be through a system that you know claims to build up society and build up the world through pitting people against each other um, and putting them in competitive spaces the 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 neoliberal would say like oh this is how we get you know the the best rise to the top and people learn to innovate and people become really great because they're pushed in this competition with each other but what's the 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 reality i guess or the flip side of that that we see in this is that, you know, we're being pushed to 
you know, to, to lay waste to the people around us and to, to ha- make them lose, you know, so we can win. And it's like, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, I think to a lot of, a lot of people's worldviews, it does have to be that way. Like that's the way the world is. There's winners and losers. But I think that that sort of comes back to like scarcity mindset and like sort of the zero sum worldview. But I mean, that part was really interesting to me. Like the class issues that were presented in that song and that whole dynamic were, were very like plain to me this time around watching it. I was like, wow, this is, this is an insight. This is an insight into the nature of our economy, I guess you could say. Yeah, there's a complete lack of class consciousness to bring Marx in, but mm-hmm. just that that understanding. So in this song, which I think this is one of my favorite musical mo- musical moments of the musical. Sure, my my favorite <laughs> one of my favorite songs um, in terms of the music because it starts off at a hundred percent and then it just goes to like one hundred and fifteen and one hundred and twenty the way that the harmonies come in and everyone is just yelling their guts out. Mm-hmm. Um, the waves crash on the sand and just the, the whole thing is like, we're giving it our all. This is the cacophony of the poor people. We are giving it our all and where it's not enough. And just the desperation of like, let us get to the end of this day. Um, and that's something that people in power use against us. If we're in the, if we're in that position, we, like you said, Divide and conquer is an active strategy that people with power use to make sure that they can keep their power by pitting their workers against each other, mm-hmm. by, you know, making everyone climb the same ladder to get to the top. Like that, that holds that power system in place because you get people turning against their coworkers who did nothing wrong because they're worried that it would cause issues for them. And there's a really incredible line when all of her coworkers kind of rise up against her. At one point they sing, if there's trouble for all the, there's trouble for all if there's trouble for one is the line. And that's a line that for them means the fact that she is in trouble, it's going to ripple out and affect the rest of us, which Mm -hmm. is true. And how revolutionary would it be to take that same line and understand it as maybe we should make sure that there's not trouble for this one. Mm -hmm. Like instead of kicking her out, let's help her out. and then, you know, Cosette lives happily ever after, raised <laughs> by Fontaine. It, like, um, wouldn't it be great if that, if there, there's trouble for all, if there's trouble for one, if we took that to mean we should make it so that there's not trouble for one, but we don't because there's no solidarity, there's no help. Yeah. It sort of exposes, I think, like the violence, you know, pop violence, that's what this is about. The violence at the heart of it all, you know, which is, mm-hmm. you know, basically the threat of what happens to Fontaine, the threat of starvation and death and exploitation is what is, that's the, uh, that's the invisible hand, right? It's this threat of, of violence. Right. <laughs> and it's... You know, that's pretty brutal. I mean, that's just like, I mean, the, the, the way that that pushes. And I think yeah. that, that that scene just really, and also the Tenardiers are a great example of that too. Like the yeah. people with nothing end up taking it from everybody else. People is, is, is quite plain through the musical. Specifically in Fontaine's story, there are so many moments that are incredibly painful to watch for many reasons, which we've already talked about a lot of them. But mm-hmm. specifically, I guess in the book, Cosette's father is this guy named Tolomier, 
and he's yes. an absolute ass <laughs> and we yes. don't really he's a rich wealthy guy who's having fun in the summer with he and his friends and they literally like they're they're having a good summer but their parents keep sending them like hey you have responsibilities back home when are you gonna take care of these responsibilities that you have back home and meanwhile their girlfriends are like hey you've promised us a surprise like when are we gonna get the surprise and so they go off on this one like totally fun day the best day ever type deal and they're like okay now it's time for your surprise and they just leave and go home they leave paris completely and go back to their responsibilities and the girls are just waiting there and an hour later a waiter comes in and says hey they told me to give you this letter an hour later and the letter is this is your surprise we have to go back to our real lives bye so that was probably too much time in this podcast than Ptolemy deserves but um because he's one of the worst but so that's how Fantine's story kind of starts right as with this guy and then throughout this whole thing in the musical we have the character of the foreman who doesn't exist in the book but is uh you know again this guy who thinks that he deserves Cosette the foreman I mean, that's what Cosette's co-workers are talking about, right? The fact that the, this foreman um, really wants Cosette and Cosette is saying no, and that's causing problems. And then, you know, uh, he fires Cosette, she ends up on the docks and we get Bama Tabois, who's the, the guy that um, she fights back against and then who calls Javert. And all three of, well, the foreman doesn't exist in the book in that way, so we, we don't get his future, but we do get Tolomier who ends up uh, as a lawmaker and we get Bois who ends up on the jury that uh, Jean Valjean reveals his identity to. So these two men that totally ruined Fantine's life uh, end up with zero repercussions and in positions of incredible power because they are wealthy. And that is the only thing that gives them that power. And it's also really, really fun, really terrible, but also really interesting in the musical Bama Tabois and the foreman have the same melody, which the musical does mm -hmm. a lot. They like pull um, the same the same melodies for different solos. But there's like mm -hmm. it means yeah. that there's this like patriarchy melody in the musical. And when it comes okay, up, yeah. you're like, mm, here's the asshole character that immediately communicates everything you need to know to the audience. I mean, that just feels so relevant to like. I mean, Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, can we talk? I mean, there like it's go. just like. What you made me think of, though, I don't know if this is a parallel or if there's anything here, but as soon as you started talking about, um, and I can't even remember how to pronounce Fontaine's uh, or Cosette's father's name. Tolomier. Uh, Tolomier, there it is. When you just were describing, you know, sort of the nature of how he dealt with Fontaine, it made me think of a line in the musical that is, that comes later on that maybe this is just like a, a, an expression of me, like thinking about my own identity. Um, but in, in one of the, one of the scenes where all the, um, the school boys are talking about their revolution, Andre Ross says, is this just a game for rich young boys to play? And, and then it kind of goes on and then they decide like, no, we're going to go, you know, have ourselves be killed. Um, while we're fighting for something good and I mean I've, I mean I've like honed it on that line before because it's just like like that is just so compelling that 
that's I think that's a lot of critical awareness to have that in there that idea you know that 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 reflexivity of like okay is this just a game that we're in? and that that's what made me think of like um what was going on with Fantine like pe- people that have the ability or the privilege I should say to just like have social interactions or even just like their their role in society can be a game and can be like a game that they can choose to step in or step out of that i find really interesting to see and i wonder how that fits into like an arc i mean i just don't know like i'm so i'm so puzzled by like the whole like the group of like college kids and like that had never been like a puzzling thing to me before, but now I'm like completely puzzled by it. Like, I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. Like, I don't know what to, what to think about all these guys. And now like thinking of that, if, if there's like a connection or like some type of like thread between that sort of line and like how that plays out in the previous parts of the story. I don't know if there's anything there, but it's just got me thinking. Yeah, I think it definitely, I mean, to, to speak a little bit, we'll probably get into it a lot more when we start talking about the revolution, but to speak to a little bit, I definitely, I like what you said about uh, Anjoris being a little more aware of his position in society. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that really separates uh, the friends of the ABC, who are the, the revolutionaries, um, from these other people that I was just talking about, is because they have a little bit more of a systemic analysis hmm. of what's, or, or they've tried anything at all. I mean, these other, the other men that I referenced they just accept that they don't have to think about it mm-hmm. because they yeah. don't. Society doesn't require them to think about it. Society was built to work for them and it works for them and therefore, great, hooray. I'm just gonna yeah. keep doing what I do because I don't have any issues. And for these men who, oh, many of the students, not all of them, but many of them come from similar backgrounds to that. They also have like incomes from their family for no reason. They also interact with the people that society doesn't work for. And so they have a little bit more of an understanding, like everyone that we interact with is not like society isn't working for them Mm -hmm. um, the same way that it's working for us. And that's something that I think that the revolutionaries have more of a sense of. Do you want me to give a brief history of France at the moment? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I mean, whatever kind of context you can give so we can have a little bit of an idea. Yeah. So um, this at the time, like you said, France is going through a lot of different revolutions and a lot of different changes in power. Um, and so the the French Revolution, the capital French Revolution that everyone talks about, that was in 1793. And so that was the like 40, actually exactly 39 years before this revolution. That revolution was against the, the kings, the, the Bourbon family was in charge at the time. Um, and so that's the all of the louis um of the french monarchy (laughs) Um, it was against them and marie antoinette so that happens in 1793 two years later valjean is arrested uh valjean is released in 1815 which uh is after so the french revolution happens and france has a couple different leadership structures in there one of which is the convention which is the most republic of the structures they have elected officials in mm-hmm. charge sharing power and then napoleon takes over and he becomes the first emperor of the first empire mm-hmm. and so in 1815 when jean valjean gets out of prison napoleon has been fighting with pretty much the rest of europe all of the kings of europe are like wait wait wait, people are overthrowing the king no we have to stop this 
And so the rest of Europe kind of bands together to get rid of Napoleon. They get rid of him and then he comes back for what's called the hundred days, which is when he tries to take power again and wins a lot of battles and he loses at Waterloo. And that's like the end of Napoleon. And after that, the kings come back for two kings. The two kings is Louis the 18th, I think, and Charles the 10th. Um, that's the Bourbons, the Bourbons come back. In 1830, there's a revolution, um, another kind of revolution of the streets, uh, but it's, it also has the support of a lot of people in power who chase Charles X away and bring in uh, Louis Napoleon, who was a, a general under Napoleon. Um, and so they, they put him in charge next, and that's in 1830. So in 1832, everyone is like, we thought we got rid of the king and we were supposed to be a republic. And basically, 1832 is when Les Mis happens. And the mm -hmm. general feeling is that the revolution in 1830 didn't go far enough. We don't have as many rights as we demanded. Um, they gave us some, but not enough, and we need more. Mm -hmm. And so that's 1832 when Les Mis happens. That's another revolution called the June Revolution. It happens June 5th and 6th. After the failed June Revolution, which is the story of Les Mis, in 1848, there's another revolution of the streets. Uh, more barricades go up in Paris. And that is the end, kind of the final end of the monarchy, even though Louis Napoleon technically isn't a bourbon. But uh, 1848 is seen as like the, the final end to that totalitarian power. And obviously France had a lot of issues after that, um, but 1848 is like this great victory of um, the revolution of the streets. It's the last time they had a major barricade revolution in Paris. Part of that is because the next people in power knocked down most of Paris and rebuilt it so that they couldn't build barricades in the streets. The streets were too wide. Um, yeah, I they, saw that. I saw yeah. that. I saw like they they talked about that in when they were doing the set design. They're like, why can't mm -hmm. we just shoot the movie in Paris? They're like, oh well, the streets have been widened. I think it was like in 1852 or, or no? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was a. It started in 1852 and then it was like a process that lasted basically until 1900. Yeah, <laughs> to totally redesign Paris. <laughs> and that's fascinating because I mean, what the book was the book was published in 1862, right? So mm -hmm. Hugo's like right in the middle of this, and so basically what you just described is basically like three lines by Gavroche in the yes, musical. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that France in 1832 looks a lot like the U.S. right now in many ways. So it's also just it it is timeless and. There, there were times that Victor Hugo, Victor Hugo really believes in like progress with a capital P, which mm -hmm. is very problematic, especially coming from Europe and how Europe is, and the West in general, and how we've, we have interacted with other people. Mm -hmm. um, but he like, he really believes in this progress and every now and then he'll be like, the 19th century, all of this will be fixed. And it's just like, oof, not quite, <laughs> still hurts now, okay. Yeah. That's interesting. I would, I would love to hear, cause I remember we, you put that uh, in your Instagram story as well. was like, what does an, you know, uh, a 19th century story have to do with 21st century America? A lot, it turns out. I think that's what you said in your thing. And I would love, I, I want to hear like a little bit more of what, uh, what you mean when you say that. 
I think, um, so, so some of the things we've already talked about, we've already talked about uh, like systems of oppression, or at least we touched on them, like the most of the systems that they're talking about still exist. Um, the big ones like um, heteronormative patriarchy and, uh, you know, capitalism and elitism and, and the power that that holds. One thing that Victor Hugo only briefly touches on is white supremacy, and he only touches on it when he's dissing the U.S., um, which is fun. <laughs> uh, but he, he so he he's, doesn't really touch on that. But a lot of the systems that he talks about, even he talks about mass incarceration. He talks really? about incentives that uh, the police force and incentives that France had for sticking people in prison, for sending people to the galleys, for um, using the labor that comes from chain gangs and the labor that comes from the galleys and the labor that comes from all of these carceral systems. Victor Hugo talks about that and he talks about times in French history when uh, you would all of a sudden see all of the children rounded up on the streets um, and sent off somewhere and used as labor. Um, the children meaning the children like Gavroche, um, mm -hmm. the unclaimed children, I guess, the street urchins. Mm -hmm. um, or, or he talks about how society, like France needs the labor from these chain gangs. France needs the labor from the galleys, which is where Jean Valjean is sent to, to thrive. And he talks about how that's so wrong. <laughs> he, yeah, he talks about other forms of, well, his, his, he spends a lot of time talking about how prison corrupted Jean Valjean because it made him hate. It kind of showed the ills of society and then made him hate society so much. Um, when Jean Valjean gets out of prison, they call him a monster. He actually, in prison, he, they say he put himself, he gets an education, first of all, because that was a service that they offered to prisoners, which is wild because they don't offer it to, you know, the rest of France. But um, so he gets an education when he's in the galleys. But then they say that he put himself on trial and he found that he was guilty. But then he said, wait, whose fault is that? And so then he puts society on trial and finds that society is even guiltier. And then he just hates society so much. And anyway, all of that was to say that Victor Hugo really sees uh, the galleys as a form, a way to extract labor, and it has no good purpose. Like there's no trans, there's no transformative purpose in a positive way when you just hit round up people and ship them off somewhere to work, to sit in a dungeon. And so anyway, so the, so carceral violence, mass incarceration, uh, the, the, the systems of oppression that we've talked about, like all of that is still very prevalent today, you know, we still extract labor from prisoners or send them to go fight wildfires and don't pay them. Um, mm. So we still rely on prison labor. We still rely, rely on mass incarceration for many of our needs. And when we release people from prison, we've done nothing to help them, I guess, is in a, I don't really like that phrasing, but we, we just lock them up and assume that's gonna change the behavior that led them there and then we release them and we don't give them jobs we like previously incarcerated people have to check the box on like every application they turn in job application housing application welfare application like there are so many things that we don't provide exclusively to people who've been formerly incarcerated 
Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that was one of the, the biggest surprises for me was how prevalent that is in the book and in the, in the musical. Like we talk when Jean Valjean first gets out and he's not paid the same as everybody else. Um, he's kicked out of the inns. They don't want to house him, even though he, he can pay. He did make money in prison. He made like, I don't know, after 20 years, he leaves with a hundred francs. So he makes almost nothing, but that's mm-hmm. enough for dinner. And they kick him out because he it just got out of prison. So we, we see that happening in the musical. It's very clear in the book. And yeah, I think that abolition message was one of, I, I, was, I was surprised at how consistent he was, mm-hmm. even when people that he thought were bad, like Thenardier, when Thenardier goes to prison, he deserves, I mean, as much as anyone deserves, <laughs> he deserves mm-hmm. to go to prison. And Victor Hugo is still like, the living conditions were terrible and no one deserves that. Even to someone like Thenardier, who I said is much worse in the book than he is in the musical. That is really interesting. And yeah, that relates so much to, I feel like so many places where a lot of like critical thought is going right now. And like, even like, I mean, like you just stuff that even like we learned at, you know, CJP, which is like so much to do mm-hmm. with like transformative justice and rethinking, I think just like that logic or the, the practice of just taking people that have done some kind of harm to society or to someone else and, and incarcerating them and separating them it's just thinking of the logic of that and, and trying to like, I guess, interrogate, like, what does that benefit? Like, does that help the harmed person? I don't know. Maybe it does a little bit. I don't know. Maybe if they, if they really like have a deep belief in, you know, that they're going to feel better if the person is incarcerated and it certainly doesn't help the, the person who has done the harm. And I think some people who have like a very traditional view would say like, well, why should we be helping that person if they've done bad things? But it's like, well, why shouldn't we, you know, like, why, why do we want to be cruel, you know, right? just because someone did something wrong. And I think, I think that's one place where at least on like a theoretical level, restorative justice and also transformative justice, like just like, start to make more sense even in like a just like a strictly pragmatic way when it's just like okay so we're not really doing anything practically with incarceration other than maybe separating ourselves from people who are going to be troublemakers or something but it but even that doesn't work because it's not like incarceration has lowered any crime rates or has or it's and policing certainly doesn't and so if from a practical level, the idea of like a restorative justice approach or transformative justice is, you know, sort of focusing on where the harm was done and how can we, you know, redress or address the harm and also try to find a way to, you know, restore the relationship or restore the, the balance or make things right between all parties involved and the transformative side, like society involved and how society facilitated this and how can we transform that? Those kinds of questions rather than just sort of like the question of punitive justice is basically like, well, who can we harm? Who can we harm because they're, they're culpable? Yeah. Ugh. I'm so glad you brought up restorative and transformative justice here. Um, because that's another thing that I, 
that I definitely was not aware of in 2011 when I first watched this musical. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that coming back through now after, you know, being introduced to it, and I, I'm working at the Erie County Restorative Justice Coalition mm -hmm. right now. So I'm working with an RJ organization. Um, and so now coming at it from where I am now, you can see restorative themes in this musical. Prison does not change Jean Valjean for the better. It changes him way to the worse. And mm -hmm. what saves him then is the Bishop's mercy. And even we see in terms of uh, Fontaine, who we talked about, like the worst of the worst of the worst happens to her and prison wants to, or, you know, the, the criminal legal system wants to lock her up for the harm that she did to a rich white guy. And even, even in that, when Jean Valjean, like that, that's one of those kids, like she needs a hospital, not a jail yeah. is what he says. She yeah. needs a hospital. Why on earth do you think that a jail is the place for Fontaine to be right now? Um, what is that going to do? What is that going to do for her? Are you going to keep her there indefinitely? If you don't, what is it going to do for society when you release her and she's not like, what is prison for? Yeah. On the, unless you're just going to keep people, give everyone a life sentence which you're not, I hope no one is saying that we should do that, but yeah. unless you're giving everybody a life sentence, what is prison for? Uh, like, you're just gonna release them after experiencing more harm. And so I think, and I, I also see in Jean Valjean, you get this a little bit in the musical because you hear how he has transformed the town with his factories. And it's part of his Who Am I song where he's like, all of these people, I'm the master of hundreds of workers. They all look to me like all of these people depend on me. Um, but they really go in, in the book about how he has saved this town. He has completely turned this town around because he has created jobs for anyone who asks. Anyone who asks, he'll give you a job. Healthcare for all of his workers. He built hospitals for his workers. So uh, if you need a job, he'll give you a job. And then if anything happens to you, he'll put you in the hospital. He'll like take care of you. If you need help, for any reason, just ask Jean Valjean. They say it so clearly, like he will help you. And so it's this really interesting dichotomy where he has he he has very high expectations of his workers, um, which they they outline. He has very high expectations, and he gives them the support they need to get there. Which is how a lot of restorative justice practitioners talk about accountability. It's high expectations with the support to get there, and. I think that that is something that is, is pretty radical in what Jean Valjean does for this town. Mm -hmm. um, on the flip side, he also does it with no systemic analysis. So he also completely ignores the, the women at the docks. He completely ignores how gender and power dynamics play into that. So he yeah. also then misses Fantine when Fantine is kicked out. And he's like, how did this happen? And she's like, dude, you kicked me out. That's how it happened. Yeah, you, this is um, your fault. <laughs> right. And even in that, though, his reaction, instead of getting defensive and like, well, I didn't know. Well, I, if you just come to me, instead of doing that, he's like, oh, my God, how can I make it better? So even yeah. that, like, how can I make this right? Even that, it's like he tried to, he tried to be restorative. He tried to be transformative, but he didn't do the systemic analysis first. <laughs> he didn't make his uh, Dugan nested model. Yeah, I was going to say stakeholder the power structure uh, diagram. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, Pop Violence listeners? This is Tim. I just want to give a quick plug. 
for the platform that I use to curate and publish pop violence, anchor.fm. If you are looking into starting a podcast, I would say that Anchor is a great option. It's free. You've got all your editing tools right there on the website. And it's really simple to get your stuff distributed to a lot of different listening platforms. And so if you want to go check it out, go check out the Anchor app. Download it for free or at anchor.fm if you're interested in getting started. It's so curious to me this time watching it that you get like such like a like this really like nitty gritty like view of just like the woes of the people like I mean the misery right <laughs> of yeah. the people it's almost like they're miserable yes during the first two acts the struggle and you just get like so many angles of it and a really good like interrogation of society and then the third act it's like I was like puzzled. I'm like, but it's all these like new people that are like, that, that are not really represented in the first two acts that are now like the ones who are trying to have a revolution and trying to do something about it. And, and I don't know, I was really, I was kind of puzzled by that. And like I said, I'm still sort of like trying to figure out what to, what I think about that, but uh, yeah, I, I would love to talk a little bit about the revolution and then obviously just how the arc between Valjean and Javert comes to its conclusion, I just find really impactful and really fascinating. So I don't know. I don't know what comes to mind for you, I guess, as I say that. I'm not really sure like what specifically to ask or to, to point to. Well, the, the songs that the students sing so red and black uh do you hear the people saying mm-hmm. um one day more the the songs that also pull in like the people around them i think those songs uh capture a lot of the spirit and well a lot of the a lot of the spirit of revolution but mm-hmm. also a lot of the the what it's almost like they outline what's supposed to come after which I think mm-hmm. is something that a lot of stories don't always do. You know, the, the story is what's happening between the first page of the book and the last page of the book. But these songs really push you to think about tomorrow. Um, mm-hmm. And think about there's a new world for the winning. What, is there something beyond the barricade? Yeah. Um, you know, tomorrow comes. It's a new world that they bring when tomorrow comes. And I think that that, that I have found the most hope out of anywhere in the past year listening to those three songs <laughs> yeah um people keep asking me like oh what's something that brings you hope in this pandemic or what's something that brings you hope and every time i'm like i have no hope um it's just <laughs> been really hard for me to find hope but then i i was listening to the end of les mis and the very final song the reprise of do you hear the people sing and i just yeah. completely broke down and i was like this is the first time i felt hopeful in at least a year yeah <laughs> if not yeah. more um and it ends like do you hear the the beating of the drums it is a life about to start when tomorrow comes but then mm-hmm. they do this like very especially in the finale this very grand mm-hmm. series of chords and then it just ends on the standalone line tomorrow comes mm-hmm. and that like that is what i was like oh my god <laughs> tomorrow comes <laughs> it's gonna be like <laughs> it'll yeah. come 
And that's something that I like have, it's been very difficult for me to situate myself in like, you know, there's another great MLK quote about uh, the, I think it's, ooh, maybe I misattributed that, look that up. Um, <laughs> but the arc of the universe bends toward justice. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people say like, that's where their hope comes in is that the arc of the universe bends toward justice. And I, I feel like at least in my conversations, a lot of people are like, that's what gives me hope. And it's been really hard for me to see that as anything, like to conceptualize that until I heard them singing like, what do you want to make of it? What are you gonna do? Like, what, what do you want the world to be like? And what are you gonna do to get there? Mm -hmm. Tomorrow's gonna come, let's do this. Yeah, and that, that was just like a huge motivator, a huge like, that, that was that was when I felt hopeful. That's beautiful. That's so, I love, I really, yeah, that's that's wonderful to hear. And I, I too, like, I get really choked up at that last, uh, the, the last part, like in any rendition of it, when I, when like all the different characters come together and I've had like this weird, well, I've been in like this weird existential like place with one of my previous episodes about Easy Rider. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but um, I listened to I, the episode. You listened to the podcast about it. I mean, it ends with like the main characters dying very abruptly. And there's an analysis of the whole film that basically like makes this point that like, you know, these guys are looking for this sense of like freedom that's supposedly like the American dream. And the whole point of the movie is that like there is no freedom um, until you're dead, basically. And I was like, I was like, okay, I need to make sure that I don't have that mindset when I watch Les Mis because I felt it was almost easy for me to like fall into that because, you know, the the characters that are living and dead all kind of come together and sing that. I'm like, this is not like, this is not saying that like tomorrow, it, like the only like way to, to progress is really like to like, is just, is not the, the hopeless tomorrow comes like a, you know, we're all going to die and that's it. But I do love what you said like and i think that 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 is like the the spirit of revolution i guess and the idea that there can be something greater and it's interesting because les mis shows so many people throughout the first two acts and even into like the, until the end that are doing the best they can in the society as is and it gives so many different examples of how that doesn't work, like, or how it's still hurting someone and how it still sucks. <laughs> like the world still is like really, really like sucks more than it needs to, um, except for the, you know, 2%, you know, the, the, the top 2%. Um, it sucks. It's it just, it just, you know, the world just really sucks no matter how you navigate it as it is it really just kind of sucks. And then I love what you said though, because the idea about, about like what's beyond the barricade, I guess. And that revolutionary spirit is like saying like, no, like I'm not just going to navigate and do the best I can in the world as it is. I'm going to like, I want it to change. Like I want to change the way that society works and the way that the world is. And I think that I don't know why. And I don't know what how to like fully even articulate this but i just feel like that's i don't know that's like a radical thing like that's like a really like radical message for like a musical to give like basically like we should have a revolution or like we should 
not maybe like we should have a revolution, but kind of like, it's a, it's like, yeah, like we, like tomorrow comes like, or like there's something beyond like the barricade. Like there's something that we have to like, we can't just like be, we can't just be in, in society. Like we gotta like, we gotta like do something about it. And I don't know if that's always like picked up at least, especially by myself, but in, in, you know, a lot of people I've, I've heard, I spent, I spent a decent amount of time on Twitter and, you know, um, in my Mormons are kind of like, it's almost like a running joke in some ways. Like Mormons love Les Mis. Like a lot of, well, a lot of Mormons like grew up with like pianos and like doing a lot of singing and stuff. And I, I remember seeing like this tweet come up and like go like kind of viral several times in like the Mormon Twitter world. But it's just like, how can we, and this was, this was over the summer when all the protests were happening following um, like, you know, the killing of George Floyd and some of the other things that happened this summer or the summer of 2020, I should say. And it was like, how can so many people watch Les Mis and love Les Mis and have every song memorized, but then look at what's happening and say like, oh, they shouldn't be, uh, you know, doing things like that or that, that that's so disruptive or, you know, sort of looking down their noses at, I guess, people who are protesting or, you know, breaking the law um, in that spirit, that revolutionary spirit, I guess. I don't know, I'm rambling at this point, but. No, I think it's a really important point. You, you called it a trap earlier when you were talking about not, not being fatalistic kind of about the end, <laughs> um, like not to fall into that trap. And I think that that's something that's really easy in Les Mis, especially with the end where everyone who's already, I mean, everyone comes out and sings and also everyone has already died. So yeah. all of the dead people come back and sing. It's easy to fall into that trap of, you know, kind of utopia or in a, if we're going to use Christian terminology, like um, the, the kingdom of heaven mm -hmm. is something that you reach after you die. And that is one interpretation of revelations, you know, yeah. um, it's, it's, you reach the kingdom of heaven. Um, mm -hmm. But there's another interpretation that says that the kingdom of heaven comes down to earth and exists mm -hmm. on earth. Um, and that is the interpretation that I think Les Mis speaks to about working to get to that kingdom. Um, and then, you know, even like, we can, we can end the theology there if we want to, but uh, talking about like the, the line, is there a world you long to see? That's the one that really gets me, mm -hmm. I think a lot is like, yes, I want something, I want something different so desperately. I yeah. want this to be different. And so then the whole thing is like, okay, so join us. Like you want something different, join us. Let's get it done. Let's work there, let's work beyond the barricade let's work through tomorrow and make it real here and that's something that in a staged production of Les Mis it's hard to get at the end but they do it really well in the movie and that the barricade that they're all standing on in that last song where everyone you know it's Eponine and Garrosh and Jean Valjean and Fantine they're all standing on this massive barricade that's the barricade from 1848 mm -hmm. that's the barricade from the next revolution that's successful so tomorrow okay. coming is this successful revolution in 1848 mm -hmm. that does change a lot. Um, that was uh, the February revolution. It was, it changed France. And so even though this revolution failed, even though 1832 failed, um, we're still working toward that tomorrow that's coming. 
And whether that tomorrow is 1848 and a victorious revolution, or whether that tomorrow is um, what, whatever world we're working towards, where you know we, we take care of each other, we have uh, communities of care and communities of accountability, and where we're working in solidarity and allied with people to, yeah, like what, whatever you dream of a better tomorrow coming, like that, that's what that final song is kind of showing us mm -hmm. as we go, where we're, we're coming out of darkness, we're, we're coming out of night into a new dawn. Climbing, climbing towards the light is actually the, the word that I was, the lyric that I was looking for. Mm -hmm. um, well, you join us as we, we're climbing toward the light. And with that understanding, I think that's why, why I can feel hopeful. Um, and it's a different, whether you're looking at it theologically from, you know, the kingdom on earth versus the kingdom in heaven, or whether you're looking at it from a, like a very tangible, come join us while we do it, because it will, it will come. Mm -hmm. Oh, I like that. That does make me feel hopeful. So that's a good feeling. <laughs> right. Isn't it nice? It is. It's great. And I don't know. It was interesting. This last time I watched it, I like fixated on this line. I don't know why, just because it's, it's well-written or because it means something, maybe both. It's the line, the blood of the martyrs will water the petals of France. And I just, I don't know why, but that line just like gets to me in some ways. It's just, it's so interesting, I guess. And just thinking about, and then I'm feeling fatalistic again. It's just like how history remembers and how history sort of like the wheels of history continue to like turn social movement perspective like we are working toward we are we are climbing toward the light we are working toward a better future and this this line that like you know the blood of the martyrs water the petals of like they like the beautiful flowers like coming from you know those who were killed and martyrdom was a topic you wanted to talk about and i'm like i don't know if i want to fully unpack that that's kind of a a, a hard one but maybe we can maybe we can touch on it because what i what i kind of wanted to circle back to was how that arc between Valjean and Javert comes to a conclusion. Because this last time I was really curious about like the symbolism of like who Javert, or, like what Javert represents and the fact that he does end up committing suicide even though the revolution fails. And I was like, I was like, I need to think about that. And so I'm wondering if, I mean, you don't have to talk specifically to that question, but just, I wonder if you had anything to say a little bit about how that arc between Valjean and, and Javert comes to an end. I have so many thoughts about everything that you just said. I think the, <laughs> the blood of the martyrs will water the, the meadows or petals of France. I forget the exact word. Yeah. I think that's, there's, so the, the song I think is supposed to be based off of the Marseillaise, which is the French national anthem. Oh, really? Which was written during the French Revolution in 1793. Oh, it was a song that was sung as they marched off. And the there, there's like two songs of the French Revolution that Victor Hugo brings up. One is the Carmagnole, which is a song that they sang on the way to watch Marie Antoinette get executed. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Marseillaise. And Victor Hugo says, the Parisians singing the Carmagnole will free France. The Parisians singing the Marseillaise will free the world harmful especially as as the west has often described it yeah, um and certainly that that there's a line in the marseillaise that's the blood it's not the blood of the martyrs it's basically the blood of the enemy but it's the blood of the enemies will water the meadows of france mm -hmm. um 
is almost a direct line. And so there's a lot in that parallel that we don't really have to get into and we probably yeah. don't have time. But I, I did want to just bring that up that um, do you hear the people sing very much as the anthem of this revolution? I think yeah. red and black is like the hymn of the revolution. It ends in a plagal cadence, which mm -hmm. is the, the amen cadence in most hymns. Hmm. But yeah. <laughs> um, so again, we talked about that progress that can be pretty. So I wanted to bring that up. We can dig into that more. But you specifically were talking about Javert and Valjean. Mm -hmm. And I think martyrdom, I was raised Mennonite, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, Mennonites have this glorification of martyrdom that is really extraordinary. Mm -hmm. I have a book downstairs called The Martyr's Mirror, which outlines supposedly the death of every martyr in Christian history. And Goodness. it is, it is, it is really something else. There, there are, there are a lot of like myths of martyrdom in kind of like Mennonite, I, I guess Mennonite mythology and, and Mennonite theology of like ancestors that were killed because they refused to fight is, is what almost all of them are. They either refuse to fight or they refuse to renounce their Christianity. And because for many Mennonites, not fighting is part of our Christianity, refusing to fight is also refusing to renounce our faith. And so martyrdom, I was kind of shocked to see how much Victor Hugo also likes martyrdom. Um, mm -hmm. The goodness of Jean Valjean is often described in his sacrifices. In his uh, Who Am I song and the equivalent in the book, he's arguing with himself like, if the right thing is to sacrifice me for others, which is the biggest sacrifice? Am I sacrificing myself and my human body to the galleys in order to save this man? Or am I not doing that, therefore sacrificing my soul to hell in order to save my town, which is the yeah. biggest sacrifice? Mm -hmm. um, and he, he talks in the same language at the end when he's talking about whether or not to stick around after Cosette and Marius He's like, is it if I if I stick around and someone finds out that I'm an previously incarcerated and escaped convict, uh, Cosette will be um, disgraced forever. So what's the biggest sacrifice is for me to give up my relationship with Cosette, who grounds me to my goodness in order to protect them and risk falling into despair again. And so like his whole most of his thought process is through sacrifice when where where and when do i need to sacrifice and what is the best sacrifice and how can i like that is so much of what his goodness is understood as which then is i think really interesting then to see javert i don't i don't know how much this has to do with sacrifice so maybe maybe we're ending the sacrifice conversation or maybe you'll bring it in in response to this but when javert uh, finally lets Jean Valjean go at the end when he's saving Marius's life and Javert finally lets him go. The book says that for the first time, Javert saw two roads in front of him instead of just one. For the first time in his life, he has two choices uh, and neither is like clearly the right choice. And um, the one is to do what's right by the law and turn in Jean Valjean the other is, you know, Jean Valjean has saved my life many times. He saved many other people's lives. The right thing would be to save his life in return uh, type deal. And the book describes it as the law of God versus the law of man. For the first time, 
Javert saw that there was another power other than the law. He saw that there was another superior other than the law is what he talks about. And he says, so he, in letting Jean, Val, in letting Jean Valjean go, he acknowledges that he failed in his job to uphold the law. So he's like, well, I have to resign then from the law. But he also sees that his treatment of Valjean then is a failure of the law of God. And he says, well, how do I resign from my superior of God? Like, what, how do I resign from that? And I think that is part of what leads him to jump off a bridge <laughs> mm-hmm. is his turning in his resignation to God, sort of. But there's, he also talks about a lot of other things in that same, he has, I mean, as, it, as happens in the musical. So Jean Valjean has his soliloquy in the beginning and Javert has a completely parallel soliloquy at the end, same thing in the book. So there's a lot of different pieces to his decision there at the end. The biggest one is just realizing that the thing that he has dedicated his life to is not 100% right all the time which is what he had, how he had lived his life. It is how he had interacted with everybody. And that Jean Valjean, who he's hated for constantly going against that, might not be the evil that he had always thought. He also has built up in his head that Jean, that because he hates Jean Valjean, because the law must get Jean Valjean, therefore Jean Valjean must also hate him and must also hate the law and must also be actively working against the law. And Jean Valjean is not. For 20 years of his life, he hasn't even thought of Javert really. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's just, he, he realizes this at the end that Jean Valjean isn't actively trying to tear me down. He's not trying to kill me the way that I've been trying to arrest him and that I thought he wanted me dead. You know, when he's captured at the barricade, he says, you've, w- you've hungered for this all your life, how right you should kill with a knife. And Jean Valjean is like, dude, you're wrong. <laughs> Yeah. You've always been wrong. Um, so yeah, that's that's some of the background into Javert's suicide. Um, I don't think there's many answers in that necessarily. I don't know. What are your thoughts? No, it's just it's just a lot to process, a lot to think about, you know. And part of my one of the, one of the things I wrote down when I was watching was I just felt like Javert, like throughout the entire thing up until that last moment where he lets Valjean go. Um, it just feels like he can't comprehend any gray or any like mercy or grace at all. Like that's just beyond his comprehension almost. Like it's, it just doesn't even register. And it seems like maybe that is is also um, indicated in the book. And And then I find it really fascinating that it's, it's framed as like this law of God versus law of man. And I find that really, I think that Javert's journey, I think most of us in any sort of pop culture that we uh, engage with parallel ourselves to the protagonist. But I wonder, you know, if there's, I mean, I think that it was, it's definitely worthwhile for me to sort of explore a little bit of how I could be paralleled to Javert, um, just because I think that, at least in my upbringing, there's a lot of ways that the law of God and the law of man are just sort of, I guess, they're they're like conflated, um, I think intentionally, um, and usually through like a sense of, I, I, I just think like American Christianity has just sort of 
become so closely intertwined with patriotism and like this sense of what it means to be Christian is also like this sort of like has this American spirit to it and vice versa. And also like this, the sacralizing of, I think the constitution and like, just like the laws of like the United States and like the, the, the USA and like, just like the, the, the symbol that that is, is just like, at least in my life, it, it feels like divorcing those two things, law of God and law of man is a tough thing. And I also think part of the reason for that is because we've also taken understandings of God. And I'm not trying to say God is or is not, but the American Christian understanding of God, at least in my experience, is that God sort of exercises and frames justice the same way that a Western legal system does. And like sort of sin is like crime. And uh, so you sort of go down the line. And it's it's been described to me in that way, in like very, very clear ways. And I, I find that really compelling as we think about sort of that, that Javert is sort of realizing that that he's sort of on the wrong side of both or he can't fully like deliver. He, he can't deliver for both. It's really, really fascinating to think about that. And I also think that, you know, you, you know, if we're, and this is maybe a side thing, but just the way that Valjean carries himself nonviolently towards Javert. And that's the ultimate thing that saves him, saves Marius and you know, I guess in a cruel kind of way, kind of defeats Javert as well, is that is Valjean's sense of nonviolence that finally breaks it down. Uh, yeah, there's there's just so much to, there's just so much to unpack with that. <laughs> yeah, I, the, um, well, what, what you were saying about, you know, tracing your own story a little bit more through Javert, like that, I mean, obviously, there are many differences, um, but Javert's story of thinking that the law was right uh, and just was, and then realizing all of a sudden that it's not, um, is definitely more of my experience coming, uh, being raised in a mostly white suburb, <laughs> mm. in a pretty, pretty, pretty wealthy, mostly white suburb. There were just very few experiences for me that suggested that the law was not just. Um, there, there were a few like specific experiences um, of friends of mine that that suggested that to me, but the understanding that what is what justice is is not defined by laws that you break or don't <laughs> didn't fully I didn't fully comprehend until I started studying restorative justice. I think um, so. Bringing that conversation back in, but the idea mm -hmm. that like a crime is a harm against the state versus a, the, a harm against a human being, like a crime against a state versus like harm and broken relationship to a, to a human. That, like that's a huge difference here between Javert and Valjean. It won't, like when Fontaine is arrested, Valjean literally says that. He's like, look, in the absence of a, of a victim, Bemetabois has left at this point and he's fine. Um, he doesn't even really get a scratched face in the book as much, I don't think. Javert, mm -hmm. or Valjean is like, look, just take her to the hospital. It's fine. And Javert's like, no, it's not fine. She, I think he literally says like she committed a crime against the state. Mm -hmm. And Jean Valjean is like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> she needs a hospital. I'm going to take her to the hospital. And he's the mayor at that point. So he has a little bit more power than Javert um, yeah. and just takes her. 
I mean, maybe when I first watched Les Mis, maybe that's why Javert never really felt like a bad, the quote unquote bad guy, like we were talking about earlier, because I felt that, especially mm-hmm. at that time. I was like, he was just trying to uphold the law. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I, yeah, I, they're definitely, and maybe that's, maybe that's why I didn't fully. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing to, to grapple with because it's like, it's, I don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't want to like go come on like this whole thing where like I can just discredit like the idea of laws like in general or like legal right. like everything like I don't feel like I'm ready to to do that and like completely like <laughs> confront that entire like app- apparatus um and say that it's all bad but I definitely think that the you know Javert sort of reveals his hand as well at the end or reveals like sort of the mind like the logic of the law at the end where he, you know, he's expecting, like you were saying, he was expecting Valjean to kill him. And I think that that sort of reveals the way that his mind works and his mind being the mind of law and order. I think that really shows how like his idea of justice or the law's idea of what justice means is really like vengeance or, you know, just like, per, or, you know, compounding harm or I, I mean, just doing something harmful or doing something violent. And so yeah, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. And that's even, that's just right there. Like our, the way that our criminal legal system is set up creates opposition where sometimes there isn't any. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's something that I didn't really think about until I started learning about mediation. Um, But I worked at a mediation center in Harrisonburg, the Fairfield center. And Mm -hmm. they often talked about like, we don't sit people who are mediating on opposite sides of the table because it makes them feel opposed. Whereas yeah. if you're if you're two people and you're you're trying to work out what's best for your kids when you're separating, you're not actually always opposed. You're trying to work out what's best for your kids. And often you both want the same thing. And so like our the mediators that I worked with would say that a lot. Like we put them next to each other uh, so they don't feel like they have to be against each other. And mm-hmm. that's something that a courtroom does not allow for. Even just the way that we name our court cases does like it's versus yeah. <laughs> one person versus another. Like no matter mm-hmm. what, it's always oppositional. There's yeah. no room for like, well, I understand why you might have done this thing, and all I want, like, there's no room for that. Mm-hmm. Which and there's Javert's, no common. There's like no common goal. It's all just sort of like my goal or your goal, and like which one's gonna win or which one's right. 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 Yeah, that's. And so Javert has created this opposition in his head because that's all he can comprehend, and Valjean. It's like, dude, no, Yeah, I don't want to kill you. That's not my goal. It's not what we're doing here. Yeah, that's, it's so, I mean, it just, it leaves me with just so much, so much to think about. It goes without saying that we've covered a lot in this conversation. So many different topics, so many different ways of looking at the world. Les Mis is a story that's rooted in this ever-present struggle of people to desire and work for a better world. And I think that that just applies to so many different ways that this podcast is trying to facilitate conversations, talking about violence, justice, peace. It's certain that with such a wide range of topics, Lindsay and I are definitely going to have some blind spots and not be able to touch as deeply on a lot of these topics as we'd like to, especially if we think about things from a a 
a lens of intersectionality, thinking about all the different ways that that oppression and violence are compounded on people who are marginalized. And so I want to hold that and also hope for this conversation to at least be somewhat foundational in prompting um, more of a, a, a genuine search into those topics and also hoping that this can be sort of a primer for my future podcast that will hopefully continue to get into some of the specifics of different ways that we see these types of, uh, we see violence come up in the world around us. Lindsay and I are now going to sort of come to the close of our conversation by talking about how Les Mis ends. And so thank you so much for listening and I hope that you've enjoyed what we've talked about so far. One of the other questions I have here is like, does Les Mis have a happy ending? Yes, and... but let's 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 finish with that question because you know okay. that's that's the perfect way to 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 top off the discussion. Yeah, I just I um I think I have never felt like it had a sad ending, and also it ends with like everyone dead, which is like wait, so shouldn't yeah. it be a sad ending? Like it literally ends with Jean Valjean dying. Javert has already died. All of Marius' friends are dead. Fantine is dead. Like everyone is dead. Cosette and Marius are sobbing on stage. But then we get to this, do you hear the people sing? Which I've already talked about how that gives me hope. Mm-hmm. Ending with tomorrow comes. Like, yes, everyone is dead and tomorrow comes. But I asked my brother the same question and he feels like Javert's suicide makes it not a happy ending. Because you think for a second when Javert lets Jean Valjean go that he's going to change. And he's going to transform and uh, change the way he interacts with the system and change the way he interacts with the people around him. And so you think that there's hope for Javert and then he can't handle it and he jumps off a bridge. So yeah, I was interested what you thought about that. I've already kind of talked about my hope in tomorrow, but yeah, what, and, and how does that interact with what we were just talking about with Jean Valjean and Javert? And does it, yeah. does it change the ending of the musical that that's how Javert ends? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when, when like you just res- uh, gave your brother's response is like, how would that change, at least in the movie? I think it, in the stage productions, it is this way, but at least in the movie, if Javert had appeared on the the barricade with all the dead people um and was singing that you know um but i don't i don't know like it's i guess happy ending i think that it is it almost feels like a like a dialectical like progression of history or a it's it, it i think one of the things that you said that that feels like an appropriate way to answer that question is like almost that like it doesn't really leave it although it's definitely like a very big like you know I guess send off but it doesn't almost feel like like a like a purely an ending you know it's it's sort of it reflects back through the entire the entire production and then reflects that all that you know sort of plasters that back towards the future and I think that with Javert not being able to survive that and not being able to transform and sort of move forward with that, 
I still think, I don't know, maybe this is like a violent way to answer this, but I still feel like it can be a happy ending. Um, I don't think that it's good that, you know, that someone like him or even like people in general would have that type of ending. But I think what he symbolizes jumping off a bridge, like not like the person itself, but like the, what the person symbolizes jumping off a bridge would not be the worst thing. <laughs> um, and I also think that, you know, maybe it goes back to the, um, the, the blood of the martyrs. Maybe that, maybe, you know, he's one of those, like, it's just, I guess it's part of that struggle, you know, um, it's part of that, the, I guess the, the, yeah, I guess the, the, the conflict that pushes forth or pushes forward the progress um, that history and society so desperately need. And I think that Javert is part of that progress whilst he's sort of like, you know, its biggest uh, resistor. <laughs> yeah. I, if, I like that you, if you think about it symbolically, it's very different, right? If yeah. Law and Order went and jumped off a bridge, especially the way that capital L law, capital O order, law and order has been used in the United States. Mm -hmm. Like if that concept of law and order went and jumped off a bridge, that's a different ending. Yeah. Um, but I also, for me, I think when my brother said that, I've like never considered Javert's end to be the end of the musical because so much happens after it. Yeah. And so for me, it was like, even given that, even then tomorrow is coming. Um, but it made me, what you, something that you just said reminded me, I think it's Jean-Paul Lederach who talks about moving forward in kind of spirals. Yeah. I think, and so that you don't, you're not always moving one direction. You're making a little bit, you're making steps and then, you know, you're stepping back and there's more conflict and less conflict and constantly these, these cycles in a forward direction. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, I think Victor Hugo really is trying to get at that when he's talking about the progress and these revolutions and the difference between 1793 and 1815 and mm -hmm. 1830 and 1832 and 1848. And the, the whole, going back and forth between the royalists and the napoleon the bonapartists and all of that history and with these characters as well you know these characters aren't 100 percent good all the time they're also trying to get there and falling short sometimes so yeah yeah oh man oh i just do want to say thank you so much though like this this was really really fun and i yeah, I'm just so grateful that you've come with such enthusiasm and such knowledge um, to this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for providing an opportunity to do it. A decade, uh, a 10, 10 anniversary dig into Les Mis and explore more and what it means. I really appreciate it. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, the opportunity. <laughs>